Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Over the past year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has spurred Europe to devote greater attention to defense, with many countries announcing large increases in defense spending and sending significant military aid to Kyiv. Yet rather than providing momentum for Europe's stated ambitions of strategic autonomy, the war has instead seemed to underscore its continued dependence on the United States. Certainly, Eastern Europe seems to have grown quite wary of German and French leadership. Yet the United States, at the same time, continues to underscore its most important priority remains countering China in the Indo-Pacific. As such, the importance of developing a more capable European pillar of the alliance remains. In this seemingly paradoxical moment, what future might lie in store for European strategic autonomy? And to discuss this and more, we're very pleased to have Liana Fix, Tara Varma, and Justina Gotowska uh, to join us today. Thanks and welcome to you both. Or actually, not welcome to you both. I'm, that's what I'm normal. That's what I always say. <laughs> Thanks and welcome to you all. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Brief bios, Liana is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a historian and political scientist with expertise in German and European foreign and security policy, European security, transatlantic relations, Russia and Eastern Europe. Tara is visiting fellow in the Center for the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution. She focuses on current French defense and security proposals in the European framework as well as ongoing efforts to materialize European sovereignty and health, economics, climate, energy, and more traditional security fields. And Justina is the deputy director of the Center for Eastern Studies based in Warsaw, Poland. Her work focuses on security and defense issues in Northern and Central Europe, uh, including defense policies and armed forces development in Germany, as well as in the Nordic and Baltic states. Okay, we were just joking. We have our all-female uh, Weimar Triangle with us today, so it's a, a couldn't have a better group. Um, how? Let's see. What I thought I would do to start is really turn it over to all of you for your various perspectives on the state of the narrative around strategic autonomy. How has it changed or not changed in the wake of Ukraine? And Tara, since you're our kind of French voice on the podcast, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Uh, thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Jim. It's really great to be back on, on the podcast and to be on, on such a stellar panel with Justina and Liana. Um, I've been quite struck. So I've been following discussions on strategic autonomy and strategic sovereignty for a while. And I have just arrived in Washington. It's not even been a month. So I'm just a new Washingtonian following these discussions from basically across the pond. And, and that has been quite fascinating um, to me because I find that actually strategic autonomy is, is discussed quite a lot here and with the, uh, in a way, different dynamics than the current uh, discussions in Europe, though we find defiance and reluctance on it here and there too. Um, and I understand that. I think it, it is useful to go back to the definitions of these concepts because they can seem a bit arid. Um, and I also, I'd like to say generally strategic autonomy and strategic sovereignty are used interchangeably. I, I don't think they should be used so interchangeably. Strategic autonomy is part of European sovereignty, but sovereignty actually covers a much larger framework. So let's get into that very, very quickly. Strategic autonomy is defined as the capacity to act independently in an interdependent world. 
that's quite large. And it's been present as an objective in European Council um, and European Parliament documents for the past 10 years now. So it is actually a concept that is endorsed not only by European institutions, but also by European member states within the European Council. Initially, it was really more traditional security um, in the period, basically, after the, the during the Trump administration, there was also a sense that Europe needed to defend itself more. And the big issue around strategic autonomy is, of course, the relationship to the U.S. and what it means for the transatlantic relationship. European sovereignty, on the other hand, is about protecting infrastructure, critical infrastructure, protecting supply chains. And I think the COVID pandemic has put us into this as well. Um, enlarging European power, uh, but also participating in a rules-based order. So it's a much larger framework. It's about protecting Europe, but also projecting European power. And in that framework, of course, strategic autonomy has a role, but it's not a role just in itself. And I'll stop here. But before we move on to Liana for her view, though, how do you think the war, has it changed anything? Is there any um, discourse, particularly in Paris, about, um, you know, the implications of the war, whether or not um, the rest of Europe continues to look at France as a leader, whether or not this idea is actually viable, given how, you know, the, the U.S.'s role has remained um, so central in the response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. Just maybe say a few words about whether or not you've detected any change in the way that people are talking about the concept and its viability. I think what the war has proven is that the U.S. is the indispensable ally in protecting Europe right now. We, you know, Ukraine would not be in the position it is now without the, the supply that the U.S. brought, has been bringing for the past year. But it has also shown that the Europeans were capable of acting for once. And they acted in concert with NATO. They acted in concert within themselves. There was a very strong European and transatlantic unity that is going to be hard to maintain, honestly. But They've been doing so for a year. And going back to the concept, strategic autonomy, basically, for it to be fulfilled, you need three components. Autonomy of information, autonomy of decision, autonomy of action. Autonomy of information, we are not there yet. There is no European intelligence network. There are some intelligence network, you know, some of which actually the U.S. is part of, and there are no European Union member states. In it, it's usually a national member state prerogative. I don't see that changing immediately, though Macron has tried to form um, a European uh, intelligence academy. I think he tried to do that a few years back, but it hasn't actually materialized until now. Autonomy of decision, it does exist in the fields that are relevant to European competency. So in foreign affairs and defense, it's you know a work in progress. But in other fields, I think it's worked quite well. Autonomy of action, we are not there yet. The EU is not capable of acting in traditional security fields for now. This doesn't mean that it shouldn't be on the path to try and do so with the US ally. Because, the, again, the role of the European Union is not to replace NATO. But I think what the world has made clear is that there is a complementarity in these roles that we need to, to cherish and to mobilize and actually to make better and stronger. Really helpful. Um, Liana, over to you. Um, you know, same questions. If you were to describe the view from Berlin, what do you think it looks like currently? Yeah, let me start with the view from Berlin on um, strategic autonomy and then with my view, because it's not entirely the same as the view from Berlin. Well, I think 
Berlin shared in the past some of the skepticism of Central East and European countries towards the idea of European strategic autonomy of sovereignty. And I'm really talking about the narrow definition, sort of autonomy and security and defense, not an energy, which is looking good on other aspects, but really about security and defense. And there Germany always underlined that any EU defense efforts have to be a pillar within NATO. So they had the same kind of suspicion that, you know, for Macron, this was really about French leadership in Europe and about some kind of decoupling from the US, which Paris always denied. But the suspicion was there. And um, the one of the former defense ministers of Germany, we now have a couple by now, um, actually called some of Macron's proposals an, an illusion to talk about European strategic autonomy, which was quite a role in the relationship. Now Germany has committed after the outbreak of the war to have the tornadoes um, as, so the US tornadoes as a continuation of Germany's contribution to nuclear sharing, which was obviously, I mean, Paris was not amused, amused about that. Paris wanted to have this in a European context. And I think from the German side, it is a strong signal that Germany is getting rather closer to the US and rather closer to security and defense cooperation with the US on the tornadoes than it is getting to the idea of European strategic autonomy. Um, and there are two other uh, episodes that, that confirm this view and confirm my personal view why this war is a lost opportunity for strategic autonomy in Europe. First, it's a lost opportunity because France would have had the ideal chance to just throw out everything they have on Ukraine, on the eastern flank, and to convince Central and Eastern European partners, look, you can rely on us. Even if we take a greater role in security and defense, we are here, we are there for you. France hasn't done that to the extent that perhaps would have been possible. I mean, they've done substantial support, but not this huge effort that might have increased French credibility in Central and Eastern Europe, who are much more critical. Justina can talk much more about that. And I think the final blow to European strategic autonomy came basically from Germany. And that was the tank Zaga that we had about um, a week ago, when it was not necessarily about France, about but about Germany telling the UK, which could be part in, of broader European strategic autonomy or leadership discussions, telling the UK, you're not enough as a wingman. We only go ahead with the United States. Whatever idea of you know, extended deterrence not being uh, sufficient enough and an additional reinsurance from the United States was possible, I think this was really a step back to any ambition. And it's actually a shame because it is in Europe's interest with EU strategic priorities shifting towards China and the Indo-Pacific to have a stronger EU security and defense. But the concept has, to some extent, I think, become toxic. So um, Tawa and I have already discussed whether we just have to rebrand it and put another name on it. Uh, and I would be delighted to hear <laughs> if, if rebranding would be enough for Justina to, to buy into the idea. Would it, Justina? Or is this kind of concept, this notion, just so severely discredited uh, where you are that you don't mm. see that, that rebranding wouldn't even be enough. Mm, I don't see it. But but first, I would like to start with this broader 
dimension of European sovereignty, because I think that um, in um, this broader understanding, uh, Poland uh, has some uh, links and and, uh, and common uh, ground with France with regard to uh, more European sovereignty and energy policy, for example, um, and, uh, and trade policy and so on, uh, and uh, sanctions policy. I think that this, these are uh, issues that uh, can unite uh, Central Eastern Europe uh, with France and Germany. But in security and defense, uh, Poland has been um, uh, a skeptic uh, in the recent years with regard to strategic autonomy or uh, strategic sovereignty uh, ideas uh, with regard to military issues. Uh, and um, Poland uh, has been... Uh, suspicious because uh, Poland has been very much focused since 2014 and, uh, uh, on NATO, on strengthening NATO's uh, deterrence and defense uh, dimension, uh, on making collective defense stronger, and all the efforts coming especially from the French side uh, with regard to strengthening the structures of the uh, security and defense policy within the EU on moving the focus, the resources, the attention. Uh, that was uh, moving this focus, attention and resources away from NATO, the primary framework for Poland uh, for shaping security and defense uh, and uh, our security. Uh, and uh, hence, um, uh, Poland also, I think, in recent years thought that this uh, idea of European strategic autonomy, um, sovereignty and security uh, and defense is a virtual one because France and Germany are not ready to take the responsibility, neither in a political sense, strategic sense, but also in a military sense, as they uh, uh, both of these power powers are not capable of uh, um, of conducting, uh, of engaging meaningfully uh, in collective defense and uh, need to uh, invest uh, much, much more uh, in the coming years uh, to be able uh, to do so. And I think that the, situ the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, just supported the Polish claim. It showed that it is still the US that is the main uh, military power in Europe that can stand up politically, strategically, militarily you know, against Russia um, uh, on the eastern flank, both with regard to supporting us with military capabilities and also uh, in our eastern neighborhood in supporting Ukraine uh, with uh, weapons uh, deliveries. And what we see and what, what Liana talked about, um, and I call the new Scholz doctrine, uh, is uh, Germany um, supporting this claim that uh, actually the US is uh, very much needed in Europe and the biggest uh, uh, European power, Germany, is not able and uh, politically, strategically not willing uh, to uh, stand up, to take, uh, to, do, to take responsibility and to be able and ready uh, to um, stand up against Russia, to uh, engage uh, meaningfully in collective defense on the eastern flank and to engage meaningfully in supporting um, uh, Ukraine uh, because it's, um, it is afraid of many issues, uh, escalation, war. Um, Germany, Berlin has a divided society, divided political elite, and all this has an impact on how it uh, is behaving in security and defense now. So basically, from Polish perspective, uh, 
European sovereignty and autonomy in security defense is an illusion, and the war has just supported, uh, the, the reaction to the war has supported this thing. I've been changing all my questions two or three times if you've spoken, and I and I think what I might want to do first, though, is to ask, uh, do any of you want to follow up on what someone else had said before I talk about my thing? Any, any comments before we go? Tara? Just I to- just have, sorry, very quickly on French leadership, because I realized that I didn't answer your question, Andre. I'm really sorry about that. So very quickly, I think. Macron's policy now is to define France as une puissance d'équilibre. So we've been struggling to translate that as think tankers, a balancing power or a power providing a balance of equilibrium. And in a way, I think this, I hope, helps understand a bit where he comes from, though it's still not totally understandable in French sometimes. He keeps saying, and he's been quite clear about that, that France will provide unwavering support to Ukraine. This, these are specifically the words also that were used in the French-German uh, ministerial council that happened a few days ago. So I think there is a sense that they want to repeat it, to say it now. I think uh, the aid that the European Union and member states have provided to Ukraine militarily amounts to 50 billion euros. So I think that he is very much willing to provide some form of leadership. But, but for Macron, usually leadership is going at it alone. And Germany, on the other hand, is saying, well, we want to do leadership from behind. And so between someone going at it alone and someone being behind, there's actually quite a lot of you know, people in the middle. And I think we have not found yet who that person could be, whether it's the head, a head of state of one member state or whether it's the European institutions that now need to take leadership in this. Again, the United States remains quite central. But I think what we need also to say here is that the U.S. itself, not the Biden administration, though they have been saying that the Indo-Pacific remains their priority. But if another administration comes in in a few months' time and has very different priorities for Europe, Europe and European security, then we will find ourselves in a very complicated situation. As a European, I was quite struck by how the midterms elections were covered in, in European media. I mean, the level of anxiety that was there. We were looking at elections in California, in Pennsylvania, in Virginia, thinking, well, actually, what these people will vote will actually have an impact on European security. The reciprocal is really not true. Justina, I wanted to ask you, Leon, and then we'll come to you, because I think, I mean, this question, this issue that you raised, Tara, about the reliability of the United States, are there concerns in Warsaw about the staying power of the United States in Europe? And so what number, and I think I'm thinking of number one, the Indo-Pacific, and a lot of our, you know, senior uh, policy officials are going to great lengths to underscore and repeat that China remains the number one long-term strategic competitor. Um, and so that's been very vocal. There's also a strand here in DC, although it's probably not dominant, that makes the argument, well, that if Russia can't even beat Ukraine, then we should leave security to the Europeans. Surely they can handle it. And I wonder, you know, from Warsaw's perspective, if any of the, if if that makes Warsaw worried um, and whether or not that would give greater impetus to wanting to build a greater European pillar. Mm-hmm. Of course it does. and But the Warsaw has uh, different answers, I think, uh, for, uh, uh, for, the, for the, these dilemmas. Uh, because uh, from Warsaw perspective, 
uh, there is, of course, the challenge of uh, the U.S. diminishing its military presence in Europe and on the eastern flank and in Poland. Uh, definitely, uh, we need to reckon with that. And I think Poland, uh, the current Polish uh, government, understands the challenge. Uh, the answer is, uh, however, uh, not uh, uh, building uh, or strengthening uh, European security or security and defense policy within the EU. The priority is still to strengthen NATO. Uh, to strengthen uh, the, uh, the military capabilities of individual European member states, because this is ba basic, the basics. Uh, investments in national security and defense, uh, investment in military capabilities is the basic for uh, action both in NATO and within the EU. So this is, I think, Warsaw set on uh, investing uh, in national capabilities, especially uh, in of the countries on the eastern flank, but it tries, of course, to convince uh, our main ally, Germany and France, UK, uh, to do the same. But uh, diverting the attention and focus from NATO, because we have some concerns about the, the US, is not the Polish answer. The Polish answer is to strengthen uh, cooperation within NATO, uh, to strengthen national capabilities, and first of all, to strengthen our national Polish uh, uh, defense and uh, deterrence uh, capacity. And we see that now, uh, we, we have seen that in the past year, 2022, uh, uh, when Poland invested heavily uh, in um, national defense, raising, increasing um, the military expenditure, um, signing uh, huge procurement de deals uh, that with, uh, with both with the US and with South Korea and not with the European partners, not so because uh, this because of the skepticism towards European cooperation, but uh, due to uh, um, very practical issues, uh, meaning when we will get the uh, equipment uh, we procure. And it seems that uh, the uh, tanks and uh, the howitzers from South Korea will come much, much quicker than the ones from uh, Germany and France. And this is the issue because Poland thinks this is a pressing issue. Poland wants, uh, has uh, given away much of its own equipment to Ukraine and, need, and it needs uh, to fill in the gaps quickly. And within Europe, it's simply not possible because uh, European, biggest European powers still don't think we have an urgent, uh, urgent we are in an urgent situation. Uh, and this makes additionally Poland um, um, cautious uh, and um, maybe not skeptical, but having questions uh, towards our main European allies, how serious they are about security and defense in Europe. Liana, I want you to, I know you wanted to weigh in, but I want to tack on one question to um, this issue of defense spending. Um, I'm starting to see little dribs and drabs of a push to increase the 2% target to somewhere between, you know, two and a half to 3%. Um, hearing it from multiple different sources, and I wonder how uh, that push would go over in Berlin. I think Poland is very much in arms, up in arms against this kind of push because um, from from Germany's perspective, it feels like you're uh, pushing the goalpost further and further away. So Germany just agreed at least in 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 Westerwick to spend two percent. So Olaf Scholz um, mm -hmm. said that from now on, 
that he said on February 27, 2022, from now on, Germany will spend uh, more than 2% every year for its own defense. And that's not happening, not because the money is lacking, but because Germany cannot spend the money fast enough to reach this goal of 2%. Um, so now moving on to 2.5%, and again, we have to keep in mind that Germany's GDP is much larger than, than the GDP, for instance, of Poland. So a German increase to 2% would already mean that Germany is um, on par, if not ahead, of the UK and France. That would bring you uh, Germany to, to over $80 billion uh, of defense spending, and 2.5% would be even more. So in absolute numbers, this is this would make Germany the, the leading military power in Europe. Um, so there's a feeling that Berlin feels pushed in a process that 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 Berlin is, is too, too slow in. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to 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 strengthen one of Tower's arguments, and I feel a little bit between Tower and Justina, which is perhaps also the position that Germany <laughs> feels it is itself in, because I do think we just too quickly forget um, the Trump years, because sort of the the impression of Biden and the strong transatlantic tie that Biden creates just leads to you know forgetting what happened under Trump, and that we just narrowly escaped a U.S. withdrawal from NATO, and I do think to some extent and. Um, curious to hear what Justina thinks. There's a little bit of too much optimism in Warsaw about the fact that Poland will always remain in whatever kind of future Republican administration or Trump-like administration at the center and have the special relationship with the United States and can continue to rely on the United States. Um, and I'm thinking about a, a policy game where we participated, where I felt that this idea of you know Poland will be able to keep the US in Europe is um, quite an optimistic uh, assumption assumption uh, from the Polish side. And at the same time, the move that Justina just described towards an arms deal with South Korea, it feels like, and it is perceived like, a decoupling from, from Germany on security issues and a decoupling from a European uh, project, which, um, again, contributes to a widening in Europe rather than uh, coming together on security and defense. Justina, any responses to that? Or Jim, do you want? Did you want to jump in? Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, from um, the outsider perspective, it looks as uh, it might look as Liana described that Poland decoupling from European partners, uh, allies. But from I think Polish perspective, uh, the key issue is um, the building up cap capabilities quickly. So the practical issue, uh, practical issues are uh, the most important uh, ones and the ones uh, which decide uh, with whom uh, Poland would like to cooperate. It's not that Poland didn't ask Germany or France um, uh, and uh, when uh, we might get Leopard uh, A6 or A7 if we would like to procure them now. But the answer uh, or the date was um, that far in the future that it would it was simply uh, not acceptable from Polish perspective. So I think this practical issues and the, this urgency that Poland feels that Germany and France uh, do not is the key issue from uh, from our perspective. And this is something uh, that is felt differently in, in the capitals and the three capitals. Poland thinks it is uh, really uh, threatened by Russia that our security is at stake 
uh, at uh, this war. If Ukraine loses, we will be the next. And that might happen in two, three years' time. This is not the perspective that France and Germany has. And this perspective guides the, all the procurement decisions of this government. And, uh, you know, then you people who are um, more skeptical to the current Polish uh, government may give this more ideological perspective on this decoupling from Germany and France. But I think this is a very different strategic outlook and decisions are being ta were taken from this strategic, uh, strategic outlook that is different than uh, German or, or French one. I was just smiling to myself because I feel a little bit like a therapist, like Liana, how does that make Berlin feel? And <laughs> Christina, well, how does, how does this make, how does this make Warsaw feel? Um, but I wanted to ask um, Tara and Liana, I mean, like that, that's the point, right? From the Eastern European perspective, there is an urgency to, to, to protect not just their own defense, but the other pieces to be able to sustain the support for Ukraine. I think my view, and I think I share this with you all, that it does seem like we're shaping up for a prolonged war in Ukraine, like that this at least has the potential to go on for a very long time. And so the question would be, like, is it the calculus of the capitals that 2% is enough? Will 2% allow Germany and France to sustain the support to Ukraine that is required while also replenishing stocks that have been spent down? And if I could, if I could jump, jump in on that, I, you know, I, tr I shouldn't answer the question, I guess, but I, I think. You I can think answer, it's Jim. All, it's all, it's all, <laughs> it's all too late. I mean, if we were to agree at, at the summit on 2.5, 3 um, it's too late for Ukraine now. It's too late for uh, uh, for us to now build up our military, whether it's to help Ukraine or whether it's to push back on the Russians. The monies that that would come into a budget that would then be turned around on contracts and then getting delivery, we're talking years down the road. So, and and in a sense, and I'm sorry to to jump in before you all answer, but but I was thinking of this along the lines that you were saying, it, you know, um, uh, th this has been a bit of a, it's been a stress test that's come too early to the, to, to the strategic autonomy debate. You know, this stress test would have been good 10 years from now, but I think what it's showing is. Um, or maybe good never, Jim. Maybe we could agree like this stress test is something. <laughs> I, yeah, I I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather have the stress test done on, on a computer than on the battlefield. That's for sure. No, that's that's absolutely for sure. But but I think I think it goes back to what you were saying, Andre, about the two percent and two point five percent. And where are we going to see, you know, um, having been a defense planner and working this with all your countries for so many years. You know, and it, it's the chickens have come home to roost, as we say uh, in the U.S. You know, we were all afraid of this scenario 10 years ago, 15 years ago, sitting in defense planning and, and looking out 10 years and looking at rates of spending and how ready we'll be. Um, we, were, we were afraid that we would be caught out the way we've been caught out now. Um, and again, this is, this is, you know, neither here nor there anymore. It's just that... Um, in terms of strategic autonomy and what Europe wanted to do, it got caught out too. Strategic autonomy and all that we were trying to do, uh, Europe was trying to do within the European Union to build that European defense, which I supported. This is, I'm not at all bashing. This is, 
This is this was the only way uh, to get Europe stronger as a partner, able to take over if we're going to China or something like that. Uh, but it's but but the the need and the requirement for that strong Europe, that strong European engine that would have gotten Germany on the road, you know, to being a military leader. France with a deeper uh, military capability than they have now. The French military is very thinly stretched. So it can't take on something without the Germans also being there and 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 having Poland also turning around and looking at its European partners and saying, you don't have what I what we need, what we see we need to have in Warsaw. You guys don't have that yet. So so I guess what I'm saying here is that like going to NATO now for the two percent, two point five percent, three percent, it's all too late. It's all too late. And I'm so sorry to say that. Um, but uh, we are where we are. And that puts the spotlight back on the U.S., this dependency on the U.S. The dependency is there not because we want it to be there. The dependency is there because Europe was not able to, to this date at least, was not able to get together its own politics, particularly in Berlin, to be the engine of defense. You know, that we saw that uh, with this. the speech made by Schultz was fabulous a year ago, but we've seen that Germany has not been able to get traction on building that that military, which is also a little bit too late. But I mean, they could have doubled down and tried to get there, but we didn't see it. Uh, and again, I said about what's interesting about France's, um, you know, France had to be able to put its forces with NATO up on the line. It didn't have an opportunity to do more than that because France is so involved in other areas. We talk about Africa, not as much there. Anyway, I'm sorry I'm going on too long, but it's just that when 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 Andreas talked about is it enough? Do we, you know, is 2.5% more? Is that enough? Can that get us there? I just want to make the point that that um the stress test that we are now seeing is showing that that we don't have for in whether it's NATO or whether it's uh the European nations themselves or whether it's within the EU context we're not close to being where we need to be. And that's why there's this dependence on the United States at a time when we're looking, we're looking west towards Asia. It's, 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 the, it's the nightmare scenario. It's the perfect storm. Uh, and we're going to be in for a bloody, bloody year coming up. And, and I don't know. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to go no, on. It's okay. I know Justina wants to jump in, as does Tara. And, but I want to put a pin in the idea. I mean, I take your point on too late, Jim, but I guess like then I would go better late than never. And I want to come back yeah. at the end to this idea of strategic autonomy being aspirational. Um, yeah. But I first I want you both to respond. I know you had responses to Jim, but to get to maybe we'll wrap at the end with like how we move this forward. Um, yes, you know, you want to go first. Um, okay, Jim, you uh, uh, sound a bit uh, fr frustrated, I must say, and I think Poland is behind this frustration. And I think Poland and some other um, has come to the conclusion we'll not get it. We'll not get what you describe that we want. We'll not get a strong uh, German leadership, a strong German armed forces uh, in the coming years will not get uh, uh, France uh, uh, jumping on, on, uh, on the board. And we uh, somehow need to reckon with that and shape our uh, security and defense arrangements within NATO as uh, the situation allows us. 
And as we see uh, the urgency of it, of it meaning uh, we invest heavily in national defense, uh, spending 3% in 2022, going up to 4% uh, this year, possibly. And many countries uh, on the eastern flank are doing the same. Uh, and we hope to convince Germany and France uh, to do more. We hope for the U.S. to stay uh, in, uh, um, in Europe on the eastern flank. Um, and we need to prepare for worst case scenario as well, uh, forging, strengthening, enhancing regional cooperation, Sweden, Finland. Uh, however, the uh, saga of uh, their NATO membership will end with, with the Baltic state, with Visegrad. Um, so this is, I think, the way um, Poland would like to go within NATO uh, with the U.S. Uh, uh, in the coming years. Tara, did you want to jump into? I did also on the stress test dimension, which I completely agree with, but I also want to say this is a larger stress test for the European Union itself. The European Union was a peace project initially. What it is undergoing is, is quite a strategic shock and, and a paradigm shift in, in its thinking of itself. The European Union doesn't want to think of itself as a geopolitical actor, but let's be clear. Our rivals have been perceiving the EU as a geopolitical actor and have been trying to make the most of that. And the most of this reluctance that the EU had to actually tackle strategic affairs until now. You're right, strategic autonomy is aspirational. And honestly, we're very far from it now. But the reality of the matter is we never thought, I mean, we never thought war would be back on the continent. It was actually back on the continent in the Western Balkans, but it was not in the EU sphere per se. Now it is here. It's been here for a year. And unfortunately, it seems like it's going to be here for a while. This is a direct. Uh, direct attack on European security. And so Europeans will need to be a lot more serious about how they get involved in defense. And that means through NATO. And I would say, I think the French view is also through European initiatives because, because Europeans will need to be able to do some things by themselves, not always with the U.S., a fortiori, if the U.S. says at some point, well, actually, we want to disengage a bit from this operation theater because we have other priorities. I'm right. not just talking about the degradation in the Indo-Pacific, which I don't know whether, you know, to the extent to which it's likely or unlikely. But what we are also hearing from the American ally is that, the, the you know, we're moving on the priority list and Ukraine will remain a European security priority, whatever happens. I think that's, that is quite important to state as well. Leanna? Yeah, I think... One operational problem that we have, and I think we should definitely mention it in this podcast, is the problem of Europe's defense industrial base. Because, I, I... This is, because this is very much one of the core problems where this is not working and why this is all coming too late. Because Europe's defense industrial base is just not where it should be to meet the demand that we have. It cannot supply the demand that is coming from Poland, for example. And that leads to this kind of further fragmentation in EU defense efforts, plus the further dependence on the United States. And I would still try to um, to, to make the case for, um, for not losing patience with Germany entirely, although I can very much understand how why this looks like from, from Poland as a yeah, as a lost as a German lost opportunity, because I do think we have quite a significant shift. Germany is not only rearming for territorial self-defense, right? I mean, that's what it has done after World War II and in the Cold War. It's not only about Germany's national security and an act of defense, you know, of, of Germany's borders. 
it has the ambition and which is clearly formulated to become a leading military power in the defense of Europe. So, I mean, Scholz called it um, the new mission of the German army is the defense of freedom in Europe. And I know that we should always look at what's being done instead of what's being said. But I think on this case, what's being said also plays a role because it is a paradigm shift in Germany's foreign policy from military restraint to at least the ambition to return to military power. And while this might take time, I mean, the, the track is very clear. No one has backtracked from the goals. It's just that they are slowly um, implemented and consequentially implemented. But it's not that we already have seen a change at, at a turnaround. And the other point is that, um, I mean, coming back to your point, Andrea, about this uh, being a therapy session, I think one of, the, one of the biggest problems is there also the German, um, the German-Polish relationship, because all the criticism that comes from Poland is at the moment in Berlin um, disregarded as some kind of anti-German domestic um, politics. It's not regarded as something that, you know, almost the whole of Polish society shares and also the liberal part in, 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 in Warsaw shares. And I think that's, that's a major problem in addition to um, the kind of paradox that the successful U.S. leadership has, has maneuvered itself in. I mean, U.S. leadership is so successful after one year of war that there's no incentive whatsoever for Europeans to, to assume a, a leadership role. And the security arrangements that are now being put in place will be prolonged in the future. And in the same way as um, the United States has entered World War II to win the fight, but didn't know that it had a lot of responsibility coming afterwards. I'm afraid we have a similar dynamic here where um, uh, there's a path dependency to the U.S. leadership, which will be difficult to change in the future without risking war efforts to, to collapse. That's that's a, a fascinating perspective. Uh, the U.S. after World War II and, the, and then the U.S. And, and the EU after Ukraine somehow settles itself. But the two quick points. Uh, one is that we haven't mentioned the UK, and I will and I will raise the UK in the in the sense that uh, a strategic autonomy and a EU military capability uh, was dealt a big blow when the UK left. Uh, they brought a lot of defense industry, but particularly they brought a very good military as well. And when they left, uh, it it just did a depth. It put a lot of pressure on Germany to, to because Germany was seen as the military engine in Europe, and so suddenly you were pulling a bigger load uh, into France too. But it's but it was a big a big uh, jolt to, to that system. But Tara, you said something too, and I want to put the, the support that by saying that. Um, you know, the U.S. didn't expect to have a war on the European continent either. And uh, that's one thing that's that we we joined with European nations uh, with the idea that uh, uh, at the end of the Cold War, that uh, peace had come to Europe, Europe whole free and at peace. And we were pulling our forces. I mean, I was there for the whole thing. And we were as deluded as everybody else after Georgia, just as deluded. 2014, just as deluded. Non-lethal equipment going to Ukraine after with the Obama administration, which I was part of. So we were just as deluded. And this is catching us up short, too, because our defense industry is having a hard time keeping up to, to try to backfill with, you know, with our arsenal and this type of thing. So I wanted to say that it wasn't just Europe. It was us, too. Uh, and we're now all scrambling and we're finding ourselves in that place we never wanted to be. So I just wanted to, to make that point.
very, very quickly. And but also, I think this is where the transatlantic relationship remains so important. I think there is a difference in the role that the EU is about to play in Ukraine. I hope in the near future, which is that the EU will be the main responsible main responsible authority for the reconstruction of Ukraine, and that means infrastructure, but also uh, legislature. You know, fighting corruption, building a healthy governing body. I mean. All of this will be actually on the EU's shoulder, in a way, to, to accompany Ukraine into its accession process. And, and this, is, this is where the EU will play a special role, I'm guessing, where the US will, will have less responsibility. So I hope that we'll be able to see that in a few years' time. Yeah, it's an important point, and hopefully it happens sooner rather than later, because I think all of the talk about trying to reset Ukrainians' expectations about when that might be is making us all nervous too. But I think we're at time. I, uh, this is the end of our first therapy session. And I think we're going to have to do it again. And I think we're going to have to do one more, again, focusing on the road forward. I mean, I, I do agree, Jim. It's too little too late. But then we are where we are. And so we have to talk about how we move things forward. And I think, again, having this group to be able to do that would be awesome. So um, I feel like we're all on the same page now. We've made some progress in our session and now we can talk about the path forward. So and thank just, you so much for the US to helicopter parenting yeah. <laughs> you know, teams and, and, and all the differences, which must be also quite an effort and quite. So we really have modeled in many ways the this relationship. Yes. Jim, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, I just want to say this has been therapy for me too. And I uh Justina, you, you noticed you said I was I was frustrated. I'm also so sad about it all. Just so sad about it. And so this is this is definitely therapy for me too. And I, and I think Liana, I'm, as I said, I was really taken with your point about uh, the U S responsibilities after world war II and the understanding that we had to rebuild. And, and we didn't go into that war thinking that we were going to have to do that. We were going in because we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. We found ourselves in this thing. And towards the end of that war, we began to realize we needed to start to build the successor to 1945. And I think, but this time with an EU partner, we will be in a very similar situation, but working together to rebuild. And that's, as as Andrea said, that's what we need to be talking about is what, what do we do when the dust settles? I, I like ending on this optimistic note. So um, thank you all three um, for doing this and hopefully we'll do it again soon. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.